0: Okay, so um, this, in case you're on the wrong flight, this is Winter Session 2008, Bio 53. It's one of the science offerings at uh, Stanford Continuing Studies. This is the Stem Cell Ethics and Policy. This is actually the second course that connects to the first course I teach called Straight Talk about Stem Cells, which is basically a science-based course. So in this course, we're going to get a little bit of biology tonight, mostly and a little more uh, biology and science uh, two weeks from tonight. But mostly it's going to be about ethics, policy, and some law. And this was actually a course that we created uh, based on student feedback for the last three years. Um, uh, the students that take the first course thought that this would be a nice complement to the second course. But I don't recognize any of you. So <laughs> so much for that a little, bit of, uh, little bit of advice. And my name is Chris Scott. I'm the director of the Stanford Program on Stem Cells and Society. I'm a cell biologist by background, and um, I now run a program with a bunch of people who are lawyers, scientists, uh, medical anthropologists. We have um, two biologists, uh, a philosopher, and um, a Jesuit priest. And we all study, basically, the ethical, social, political, and legal, and economic, actually, implications of stem cell research. And it's a very fascinating field, only because the research is so fascinating. So it's great that the biology is on a tear, because it means that we're really busy uh, dissecting what all the scientists are doing. And I love it, because I don't have to do any bench research anymore. I can just kind of you know, watch all the other people do the bench. Research and in terms of ethics, you know, ethics is a pretty broad term. Um, The one way that uh, a colleague of mine, Lori Zoloth, likes to describe it is, she says, you know, the scientists, uh, you guys do the science, we worry about it. So we're going to talk a little bit about the concerns and and uh, and some of the uh, interesting ethical dimensions of stem cell research. So here's my email address. You. Might have gotten it in the email introductory email that I sent uh, yesterday. The text and reading assignments are uh, fairly straightforward. Uh, This is one book. It's called Stem Cell Now. I I wrote this last year. Uh, I think it launched last year, uh, about November. And it's a pretty easy read. If you haven't received it uh, or bought it already, you can find this at the bookstore or order it. Online at Amazon. It's now in paperback in its second edition. I would order the paperback because it's a little more current. And then, kind of as an optional reading, a very good book called Stem Cell Century. You can see that the covers are the same or very close. You know, in terms of the graphics. This guy uh, Russ Kaborkin is a, uh, a lawyer at UCLA. He's uh, he's uh, a very good scholar and. Um, I read and reviewed this book uh, for Nature and a couple of other publications. I highly recommend it. And I'm going to assign some some readings in here if you're interested. This is only in paperback. And uh, it's just a really good companion to some of the uh, ethical and political issues that we'll be discussing. And then I'm going to give you every week a couple of weekly readings. Now these are going to be maybe science articles. They could be articles in the New York Times or the Washington Post. They might be some ethics or philosophy articles. And the idea here is just to get your mind going for the next uh, lecture. And what I'd like to do at the end of the lectures every week is to talk about those articles in a group. So we'll kind of do sort of a journal club sort of format, as they say in, in academics. The yes, these are handouts. And I'll give you those at the end of every class. Um, The grades, as I mentioned, are credit, no credit, or no grade. Make sure you register your preference on the CSP website. And if it's going to be in this category, a credit or for a grade, it requires this paper, uh, eight pages or so, due at the end of the fifth week. That's March 12th, I think. Any questions on this bit? No? Okay. so this is the class structure. I'm going to give a 45-minute lecture, which we'll be recording. We'll take a 10-minute break, and then we'll have discussion and readings for 45 uh, minutes. Uh, I pretty much guarantee that we'll never follow this. <laughs> but I thought I'd throw it up there to give you know, at least some structure for what, what we do. It really depends on the questions and how, guy, how you guys want to be engaged in, in, the, uh, in the content every week. By March 12th, this is kind of what I'd like everybody to aim for. My, these are kind of my goals for you, and hopefully you'll adopt these too. And that's first know the basic terminology of stem cell research. And the idea of this is so that you can go to cocktail parties and impress your family and, and friends. Um, most of these terms will be brought up in the lectures, and you can also find them in the glossaries of both of the books that, that, I've, uh, that I've assigned. And hopefully, at the end of the class, you'll be able to read a New York Times or Wall Street Journal article and get the gist of what they're talking about, and also read it critically. Because as we'll find during the lectures, some of the reporting about stem cells kind of gets out of hand a little bit. And so hopefully, you'll now have an informed opinion that you can apply to some of the more popular press items that are out there. Third is that you would read an, an abstract or a research paper and get the gist. I don't think that you need to worry about all the, the technical terminology. But what I'm hoping is that, at least in that first paragraph you see on scientific papers that describe what stem cells do, what the aims of the study is, and all that kind of stuff, that you'll be able to, at the end of the class, kind of pick out things that you've learned and say, oh, yeah, so this person is asking these questions about this kind of cell. and then. We're going to really dive in fairly deeply into the political, economic, and legal issues that are centered on stem cell research. And then at the end of the class, you're going to get what no one else gets uh, in this sort of uh, uh, structure. And that's what I believe and what our scholars here at Stanford believe are the new ethics of stem cell research. So in the past seven or eight years, we've been debating and discussing a very central part of stem cell research, and that is the moral status of the embryo. Whether an embryo, a human embryo, at day two or four, is in fact human. We're going to talk about that a little bit, but in a sense, the true scholarship and the debate has moved a little bit beyond that now to kind of the central uh, uh, areas that are kind of facing stem cell research now. In fact, we're um, planning on uh, starting a couple of clinical trials. Uh, With patients, and they're going to run right here in the Bay Area probably. And so, we're going to talk about some of these new issues in ethics that are coming up in the next six to eight months or so. The curriculum is pretty straightforward. Today, we're going to rush through cell biology, embryology, and genetics, okay? So, it's going to be kind of a fast forward through these major fields in the sciences. Next week, I'm going to talk a lot. It will probably be a fairly long lecture on policy, law, and society, some of the legal issues, what the states are doing, what the feds are doing, what George Bush is doing or not doing. And we'll talk a little bit about the societal issues, both here and abroad. On February 27th, this is new for the course of year. We're going to love this. We're going to take a field trip to the Stanford Institute for Regenerative Medicine. We're going to go into the biggest stem cell lab in the state. And we're going to talk to Eric Chow, who is responsible for actually deriving the first embryonic stem cell lines here at Stanford. And Eric's going to give you a lecture about that process, how to make an embryonic stem cell line. And he's also going to talk about some of these really exciting new research directions that have come out in the press and in the journals in the last uh, maybe 60 days or so. So you're going to get right hot off the bench what Stanford scientists are doing with that $50 million we get from the state (laughs) on embryonic stem cell research. Um, And this is in a brand new research facility right on the Stanford Research Campus. I'll give you directions uh, at the end of the class. Then March 5th, uh, we'll take a detour to the, the clinic. And that is where stem cells are now headed for potential cures and therapies. Now, we're a long way off on many of them, but in two cases, which we'll talk about on the fifth, uh, we're planning to put stem cells into people. In fact, one trial has now started uh, already, uh, putting uh, neural stem cells into children. So we'll talk about those trials. We'll talk about the ethical implications to them and some of the science behind them, too. And we'll have a guest presentation by Richard Chin and Lily Locke. Richard uh, is a Silicon Valley engineer. His wife, I believe, is also an engineer. He's uh, just returned from a stem cell therapy, his own, in China. So, Richard has a, a uh, debilitating, deadly disease called uh, Joseph's Mikado disease. It's a neurodegenerative disease. And he was uh, impatient with the pace of research and therapies here in the United States, so he took his wife and went to China and got a very controversial therapy. So he's going to tell you about that experience. And you'll learn firsthand what it's like um, to uh, go through something like that in a foreign land and perhaps some of the, the interesting um, issues that arise from, from uh, these sorts of therapies for, for uh, uh, neural diseases. And then finally on March 12th uh, we'll wrap up with a full lecture on Some of the new ethical dimensions. It doesn't mean that we won't talk about these things interleaved with all the lectures, but this is where we'll do most of the the focus. Okay, so the amazing thing about stem cells is that if without them we would probably just dry up and turn to dust. We lose millions of cells every second. Uh, some estimate that we lose about a billion cells every hour. So without a replacement supply for these cells, we'd lose our intestine in about 48 hours, our skin in about three weeks, and the blood system would just dry up in about four months. So when I look out, at all of you, you all look very healthy and vigorous, but really, we're all kind of falling apart. <laughs> and the amazing thing is is that when we lose cells, especially in those organs that have a high turnover, a gut is especially one of them in the intestine, um, we need a replacement system. And that system is the stem cell. And that's what makes this so exciting, is that in theory, stem cells in all of our organs can actually replenish and repair and replace cells and tissues that uh, either uh, are uh, damaged, injured, or simply die as a part of the natural consequence of of their activities. So this is a little bit of of why the field is so exciting. And it all starts really with the cell. And the the slides from here uh, on will show you some of the diagrams that are in the book. If you get confused about something I say here, just go to the book and you'll find the same The same diagram there. The cell is a basic building block of of our our bodies. They're part of our blood system. They're part of our organs. They're part of our scaffolding, bones, skin, and the rest. And they all have, most of them, have this basic structure, a plasma membrane, that thin kind of diaphanous layer around the cell, inside a nucleus where all the genetic material is, the DNA, as it's called. Uh, And then the cytoplasm, that kind of jelly-like stuff in which the the nucleus rests and where all the organelles, the machinery of the cell lie. So this is a white blood cell. It's, it's uh, typically uh, identified by its kidney-shaped nucleus. There are, of course, other cells. Um, and is there a cell that we know that doesn't have a nucleus? Anyone want to take a guess? Yes. Red blood cells, right. So red blood cells are really the only cell in the body that don't include uh, nuclei. You know, I don't know. That's a good question. Why the red blood cell doesn't have a nucleus? Sorry? Transport. Yes, that could be. Um, the fact that there's so many of them. They're end of the road cells. So they, you know, once a red blood cell is made, it has no need to divide. It's just going to kind of go and do its work, pick up oxygen and then and then be replaced. When I mentioned in the previous slide that it would take 4 months to replace the blood system, it's because we have billions and billions and billions and billions of blood cells. And the blood system is one of those robust uh, things that churns out, actually, billions of cells every day for us replacing. So they're the hard workers. Yes?
1: What constitutes the nucleus?
0: The question is, what constitutes the nucleus? Well, the nucleus has the genetic material in it, the DNA that uh, kind of comprises our heredity. So the nucleus is essential to stem cell biology because it actually includes uh, all the genes that uh, help stem cells uh, become either more stem cells or become the next cell down the road.
1: It's got, you say it has the DNA. Yes, it does. And that's it?
0: Yes, and other, other structures. But that's the main one. Okay. For the purposes of the class, DNA is the thing to remember. So here's a picture of of the DNA inside the nucleus. And here uh, I've shown a picture of of, uh, the DNA um, as it's dividing. So during cell division, when one cell becomes two, the DNA becomes very thick. And here I've shown how the DNA actually thickens at a point uh, in the middle. And then once this is duplicated, these things separate, and you have one cell then becoming two. blow this up for you just to show that the DNA is organized along a very um, regular kind of structure that's bound by chemistry. And the chemistry makes this structure into a helix. Think of it as a ladder that's twisted once or twice. And the helix uh, of DNA contains uh, a code, a chemical code, that was cracked by the famous Watson and Crick in uh, 1954, the year of my birth. And these codes then, uh, a code for specific proteins that make up the building blocks of who we are. Our hair, our blood, our, our uh, tissues, our skin are all made and coded by this specific sequence of DNA. A specific length along this helix is called a gene. So when I talk about genes, I'm going to talk about a stretch of the double helix, usually a long stretch. And estimates are that we have about 25,000 or so of these genes that actually code for something, that actually makes something in our body. That estimate tends to go up and down, but that's a pretty good ballpark figure. So this is really an unfortunate use of DNA in the theater. I just thought I would throw in there. Um, this is beach blanket Babylon. I don't know if you've seen this in San Francisco. That's King Louis. At the f- is it the fourth? I can't remember. Uh, but this was, I think, a year ago or maybe a, two years ago when Charles, uh, King Charles, or Prince Charles was here and Camilla was here. Remember that when they were up in, in Marin County looking at all the organic farms and stuff? He looked so uncomfortable. I mean, yeah. look at his hands, you know, and he's <laughs> thinking, I've got to get out of here. This is, this is too weird for me. <laughs> These San Francisco is just too weird for me. All right, so the comment was, uh, s- someone from England in the audience thinks that uh, Prin- Prince Charles has a bad uh, use of DNA. You might, yeah, you might say that. So I described how DNA makes proteins. Well, there's an intermediate step, and that's RNA. It's a different kind of chemical. And it's really the thing that, that uh, takes the message, that coded message inside the nucleus, and takes it out into the cytoplasm, that jelly-like outside. And make something called proteins. And the proteins, again, are the building blocks of the human body. Now, why would I even describe this to you? Well, this is one of these things you can take to a party. And if you encounter a biochemist at a party, which you probably won't because biochemists don't go to party, they're always in the lab. <laughs> they're boring people. Or cell biologists, you can say, you know, what do you think about stem cell biology and the central dogma? And that will um, probably get you an entree into you know some other conversation. But the reason I described this in a slide is because it's extremely important to the lectures coming up. And that's that this process of gene expression, how a gene expresses a protein, is essential to how stem cells work. And stem cells, as uh, you'll see in the next slides, don't just sit around on their cytoplasm. They're actually doing things. They're dividing. They're changing. They're building. They're organizing. And all of that has to do with this process called gene expression. This is a rather complicated picture of gene expression. The full explanation is in the book, but I'll just describe it to you. This is happening in the cytoplasm, not in the nucleus. The DNA has been um, translated into a stretch transcribed rather into a stretch of messenger RNA, the second chemical that's in the middle of that slide prior. It sits within a structure called a ribosome and it recruits through a chemical process a growing chain of amino acids. We have 21 of these uh, in our body and it links these amino acids based on the code. So that code of bases that I mentioned in the helix are actually coding for specific Uh, amino acids. And these (coughs) amino acids then link into long chains like beads on a string. And once the chain becomes big enough, then they are clipped and they go off and do their work in the cells, whether it's an enzyme or a building block for a structure or some other.
1: Proteins and enzymes, are they they identical or are they?
0: Yes, they're, for intensive purposes, uh, the same. Uh, I I believe it's a protein can be an enzyme Uh, Or, I'm sorry, enzymes are always proteins, but not the other way around. Yeah. Right? So now you've had a little bit of molecular biology. We're going to go into an entirely different (laughs) field. And that's developmental biology. And developmental biology starts with embryogenesis, or the starting of an embryo. This is really important because this is the place where embryonic stem cells begin. And there are three steps I've outlined for you. One is that eggs and sperm come together. Uh, Each oocyte or spermatocyte, these are the the precursors to eggs and sperm. They each have 46 chromosomes. (coughs) Excuse me. And when these uh, chromosomes in the gametes are reduced by two, they come together and fertilize in an egg, and you get back to 46 again. Fertilization is usually one sperm, one egg, and the genes in each are required for development. What I mean by that is that there are certain genes in sperm and certain genes in eggs, and they both have different operating manuals. And they're very important, in fact required, uh, in order to develop a complete organism. This point is worth um, taking home, and that's that the zygote is the earliest form of the human embryo. Now, embryos, as you hear in the press or described in the textbooks, can mean a lot of different things. And what I'd like you to take home from this class, if nothing else, is to understand that when biologists talk about embryos, they can talk about many different stages of embryonic life, all the way from day zero, which is this, at fertilization to something much later, day 12, day 15. In fact, embryogenesis lasts weeks. So you could be, if you're talking about an embryo, an embryo at week four. You Might say an embryo also is at day zero. So it's very, very important when you're reading or discussing with people about embryonic life that you kind of get it clear in your mind and in the discussion what stage of the embryo you're talking about. And that's where actually a lot of the confusion around uh, and controversy around embryonic stem cell research stems from, is this definition of the embryo. For the purposes of this class, we're going to be talking about embryonic life at day two to day four. I, think, I, don't, I don't think we'll talk about it at any other stage. So the books that you read when you talk about uh, embryo, the embryo debate, or em- the uh, embryonic stem cell debate, it is referring to the embryo at day two to day four. And here are some pictures of how we get there. Uh, it's a process called cleavage. And it starts right after fertilization. On the right, the one cell that's fertilized then divides into two, divides into four. And into an eight, and so on, until you get this ball of cells that resembles a mulberry, hence the Latin morula, and then this goes on to form the blastocyst, which is a fancy term for the embryo at day four. This is the embryo that uh, that w- we talk about in the class. So this is about a two to four day process here, and the interesting thing about this is that if you notice the scale of the picture, you'll see that these, the, the embryo actually stays the same size all the way through. And that is that the cells actually are dividing and getting smaller every time uh, there's a, a doubling. And it's quite interesting to see this in a, under a microscope because at about day four, there's a cavity inside the embryo that tends to, f- to form. This, this, uh, this is sliced this way now. And that fills with liquid, and there's a group of cells around the outside and a clump of cells on the inside. And this is the first significant change in early embryonic life that cells encounter, the first big change. These clump of cells right here is called the inner cell mass, something also to take home because it is this clump of cells that then become the embryonic stem cells. A common
1: form, total of these small cells, after four to six weeks.
0: A common form of these cells.
1: total, like hundred cells. Oh, oh,
0: right. So the, the question is, how many cells? Yes. Yeah, so the the blastocyst, as as a whole, has about one hundred to one hundred and fifty cells at this stage. The inner cell mass is give or take a few dozen. Okay. the The size is about. The about as big, a little bit smaller than a full stop, on a piece of paper. Uh, 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 the width of a human hair is another way to kind of get get your arms around how big this is. Um, you can't see it with your naked eye, or it, you'll go blind. Trying to. Okay, now the outside cells is called the trophectoderm. So when I said this was a, a first big decision of fate for cells, it is that these cells then become the placenta and amnion that support the embryo, which comes from the inner cell mass. So this is where the organism develops. This is the amnion and placenta that supports it during pregnancy. And these are general rules for mammals, and also some other animals, but mostly for mammals. Right. So here are some pictures uh, from a microscope, under a microscope, of the embryo during these stages. They're not to scale, uh, but uh, I give them to you anyway. You can kind of see on the left here the embryo at day one. And then at 12 hours later or so, where it splits into two, two into four, this is an 8 cell. Uh, embryo. And then here's a picture, basically top down with a lot of light coming through it, of an embryo at day five, with the inner cell mass clumped along one side. And when an embryonic stem cell line is made from this, this is destroyed, which means it's taken apart to get to those cells inside. So therein lies a lot of the controversy. Because this is actually destroyed or killed to get the embryonic stem cells inside, which then go on to do some pretty special things. I don't know, you know, about the source of this. these pictures. These came from Catherine Verfai, who used to be at the University of Minnesota. Now she's uh, in Europe, I, I believe. Um, it's pr- these probably were from uh, an embryo that came from an IVF clinic, donated a a so-called extra or supernumerary embryo. She took these while she was at Minnesota. Now, one of the papers I'm going to give you tonight to take home is the thing that started all of this. And his name is James Thompson. He works at the University of Wisconsin. He's been in the news lately, uh, in the New York Times actually, a couple of months ago with his recent discoveries, which we'll talk about in two weeks. But the big one was 6th of November, 1998. It was a huge deal. And he reported in a very short paper, three pages, I'll give it to you to take home, that he had figured out how to get this into an immortal, thriving, potent, powerful line of embryonic stem cells. Up until that time, no one had reported this discovery, only in other animals, mice and some others. This was a big deal because first of all, going from mouse to a human system is kind of tough for science generally. But it was also a very big deal because in the uh, abstract of the paper, which you'll read, it says, this discovery has important implications for medicine. And if you just kind of play this forward a little bit, all of a sudden, you had, within, we had within our grasp, a way of getting a type of cell that could, in theory, make any of the 200 or so cell types and tissue types of the body. Another word to take home to use at uh, parties, if you'd like, is the word um, pluripotence, P-L-U-R-I-P-O-T-E-N-C-E. These cells are pluripotent, which means, in theory, they can make any cell type in the body. Now remember, that makes sense, right? Because the cells came from the inner cell mass, which is the thing we know from embryogenesis makes the animal. So if these cells go on to make a complete animal, then the logic suggests that they can also make all of the parts of an animal, including lungs. and blood and uh, different cell types and eyes and all the rest. So here we have within our grasp, thanks to James Thompson, a very interesting cell type, more powerful than any we'd ever uh, looked at before. Here's actually a a picture of the real thing. Uh, And these are cells that actually I made uh, last week at Stanford. Um, And it's a, a picture of a colony of embryonic stem cells. That's the cluster in the middle. I suppose there are several hundred of them here, surrounded by these very shiny long cells. Can you see them here? You can see one here with a nucleus. They kind of have these long processes that stretch out. These cells around the outside are called mouse embryonic fibroblasts, or MEFs. And these are the cells that actually feed or nurture the human embryonic stem cells that are in the middle. So these cells actually take nutrients and chemicals that are secreted by this feeder layer and then use it to divide and divide and divide again. And these grow extremely quickly.
1: Are they human
0: embryonic these, these are human embryonic stem cells. In fact, this line of embryonic stem cells is, on, is one of the famous ones that's on the government's list of approved Embryonic stem cell lines, the so called presidential lines, named after George Bush. Yes. So the question is where are the feeder cells from? They are actually from a mouse. Now, there are some cultures that have feeder cells that are human origin and some that don't have feeder cells at all. They're called feederless preparations of uh, embryonic stem cells. This particular line. From the government, works really well on mouse embryonic uh, feeders, so it's just simply you know there's a term it's called optimized and in in th- this is fairly old now it's ten years old give or take uh, and so this is uh, a way that they give novices like me a chance to actually derive a line or not derive a line but a grow and culture a line on a very well established protocol.
1: And are they- Providing
0: nutrients, or what are the mouse cells providing? The mouse cells are providing nutrients okay. and helping these cells double and divide. And pretty soon, these colonies will become rather large, and in fact, will overgrow the dish that it's in. And then you have to do something called passage. Or I, was, I gave a, uh, a few um, uh, classes in, in London at King's College, and they call it passage. <laughs> So so you after a while you have to passage the cells and split them up so that they don't overcrowd and actually die. They grow so fast. That's one characteristic of embryonic stem cells is they're just on a tear. They just love to divide and grow. And they will grow pretty much forever. That's one very interesting characteristic of these cells in culture now. Now these are in culture. These are laboratory artifacts. It's very important to know that embryonic stem cells really aren't defined in uh, uh, the body, right? When we say embryonic stem cells, we mean these cells in a dish, okay? So a uh, uh, small distinction, but important one to scientists. When well, you grow in culture medium or whatever this thing is, the mouse feeder, mm-hmm. and you say you get so abundant, can you actually see the clumps of them then with the human Yes species? So the question is, are these big enough to see? And the answer is absolutely. And in fact, you can. This is a very small dish. It's about this big around. Is this a picture, yes, is this? it is. Yeah, um, and you can see them as pinpricks all over the all over the feeder layers. And sometimes they'll be big enough that they'll actually kind of float around and move from one part of the dish to the other. Were
1: these human embryonic implanted in a mouse? Is that?
0: No, no. These cells were not were not implanted in a mouse. These actually came from a human embryo. Okay, and then, what's the
1: relationship to the mouse?
0: Well, the, the these cells are just simply supporting the cells and keeping them alive. Without these feeder layers, these would die.
1: And it's all in the all in a
0: dish. All in a dish. We'll see them actually in two weeks. Yep. Yes. It all, it all goes to the right. So the the question is, um, how do you tell the difference? And maybe what you're asking also is, how do you know if you've got a good one? You yeah. know, a good set, right? So the reason I took this picture is because it was a good one. You know, I was pretty proud of it. But there were lots of cultures in this dish that didn't look very good. And what happens is when when these cells uh, uh, aren't behaving correctly, they actually start to kind of change and they start growing off into the margins of the dish and changing into other cell types. So this picture is characterized by a very clear border between the embryonic stem cells and the mouse cells. You can see that it's kind of constrained to a round shape. So this is what they would call a pretty healthy growing uh, culture, a clone of embryonic stem cells. Well, the the question is whether or not there's a a kind of a substrate uh, underneath the mouse cells, and the answer is none. So there is no auger on this type of a culture. These are um, uh, the mouse embryonic stem cells are on kind of a uh, kind of a very thin layer of of material that's under them that causes them to stick and sit down on the plate. But there is no. It's not like um, you know, some of the old bacterial cultures you might think of are plant cultures. It's uh, very much new, new whiz kind of stuff. Is it, is One it more question. question. Yep. Sorry. That's all right. Is it right. matter where the feeder cells, I mean, excuse me, the mouse, yeah, they're called feeder cells, feeder layer. Is it from particular tissues within the mouse, or it doesn't yes. matter where it is? Yes. No, it is. It's very, very much. Um, so the question is, where do the feeder layers come from, from a mouse? Well these feeder layers uh, were prepared by um, sacrificing a, a a mother mouse that was pregnant at 12 days, and it, that's about I think halfway through the gestation. I'm not sure, quite sure, but um, the the embryos in this mother mouse she had 13 of them in this particular case, and those those embryos the mouse babies are about this big, maybe. Uh, you know, a centimet- less than a centimeter. And w- what you have to do is take the skin. I, m- I mean, it's a very translucent sort of procedure. You take the skin from the mouse, and you take 12 of those s- mouse skins, and you chop it up into little teeny pieces. And then you put it through a, a procedure that separates all the cells. And then you count the cells to make sure you have the right density so that they're not overcrowding each other, because these can be uh, too, too close. And then you treat the cells with a chemical that keeps them from dividing. It's called a mitogen. And so what that does is it kind of suspends the cells in, in their, uh, their state so that they're alive, but not dividing. And so this then becomes a very stable layer of cells that uh, doesn't divide, but simply pumps out nutrients to the embryonic stem cells around them. That was the part that I didn't like very much, was making the mouse embryonic feeders. I made enough to last for six months, though, so there you go. don't have to do it very often. OK, so what do we use these things for? Now, we've talked about, so far, just the embryonic stem cells. And it's worth thinking about what makes this such a big deal for biology and for medicine. And here's a sequence of slides that hopefully will show you why this is so important. We've learned about this already, right? Look familiar? We're now to this stage. so. We can then propagate these cells in culture, which I just showed you. The interesting thing about this is that they can be immortalized, or they're immortal. They can last for years and decades. In fact, the original lines are still going pretty strong. They are, remember, pluripotent, which means that they can, in theory, become all the different kinds of cells and tissues in the body. by directing these cells down one pathway or road, let's say towards the intestine, towards the blood, towards heart, you could have in your hands an, ex- an inexhaustible supply of cells that could make Are these sorts of there that cause it to become a blood cell or against some of the
1: other types? and you can control during the course of differentiating?
0: Yes, so the question is, are there factors that can control the way these cells uh, go, whether they go one place or another? And you've just described the biggest question that's facing the field. And that is, how can scientists get it to go this way and not that way? Because these cells pretty much do whatever the heck they want. And they, depending on the moon (laughs) and the whim and the day and the temperature tend to differentiate or change spontaneously. And that's not what we want. What we want to do is actually control these cells through certain uh, factors in the media and perhaps genes to go one way but not the other. That will be perhaps a Nobel Prize. I mean, the way that if you think about controlling stem cells in the way that they differentiate a change, that's the big issue. It's the brass ring. And the reason that that's so important is because what you want are billions and billions and billions of the cells at exactly the right stage for a person who needs them. Now, what's the problem with this particular scenario that you can see? Anything there missing? Why don't we see more division errors? Sorry? Uh, Why don't we see more division errors? Division errors. In in these cells, you yeah, mean? They fast forever. Yeah. So I, I didn't mention, but that's a good question. Um, are the cells because they're immortal and dividing so quickly? Do they kind of have inborn errors or, or errors of division? Uh, another interesting thing about um, uh, embryonic stem cells is they have a very stable chromosomal type called a karyotype. So one of the characteristics of embryonic stem cells is that it has a high degree of chromosomal st- stability. It doesn't mean that culture doesn't do weird things to the DNA inside the cells. Right? We don't know really what culture will do to these cells that makes them very different than the cells that are present normally in the body. And that's a very good question and a very important one to think of as these kind of move towards the therapies. But there's not, there's something else that I'm trying to uh, get at here. That's that's missing in this slide. What would happen if these cells were put into this patient? Rejection. Sorry, rejection. someone said rejection. rejection. Okay, that's right. it. So why why would they be rejected? We didn't use their stem cell. Right. A foreign body. Right, a foreign body. So you're not using the stem cells from the patient. You're just getting it from some other place, right? So embryonic stem cells that come from an IVF clinic somewhere, the donor that, you know, donates a, a spare embryo that they don't want that will be thrown away anyway, will have a different genetic type in this scenario than the person who needs it. So this doesn't make it any better than our normal kind of organ transplant sort of s- system, right? I mean it's pretty neat because you can theoretically do all this cool stuff. But really, the, the end result in the patient is rejection.
1: Yes. Is it arbitrarily, as these potent, that sometimes they become heart muscle cells and liver cells, and if you, you can sort of harvest them, if you know what they need for somebody who might need a liver cell or whatever they.
0: Yeah. So, so is your question? Can could you make enough of them? They
1: arbitrarily go into some of this. Yes. So, you you can't control it. Right.
0: So, in the question is, do these cells kind of arbitrarily go one way or the other? And yes, they do. And And a week after next, we'll see some cultures. I believe that Eric has of these cells that have arbitrarily decided to become beating heart cells. It's amazing to see. Um, They just, you know, you leave them alone for a while, and you come back and they're all going. (laughs) But that's the problem. That's the problem. So how do you solve that problem? Well, you do it from a technique that sprung from animal cloning. And here's another touch point for the controversy. Only with the Google images could you pull down these two things with one search. It's fantastic. But there's a reason that Dolly Parton is there, I'll explain in a minute. Let's just concentrate on the right hand side of the slide here. This is the famous Dolly cloning experiment that came out about the same time as James Thompson's famous paper, a year before. The guy who discovered this is named Ian Woolmott. He's a Scotsman, a very good embryologist. And what he did when he announced on the cover of Science Magazine in 1997, I think it was, actually there was a picture of Dolly on the cover, um, was that he figured out how to make a cloned sheep using a technique called nuclear transfer. And here's how it works. So. The sheep on the left is a black-faced sheep. And that female sheep donates an egg. And the egg, as we've learned, has a nucleus in it, genetic material, that's, uh, that belongs to that black-faced sheep. This sheep on the right is a Finn dorset sheep. This sheep gives a cell, not an egg, just a cell, taken from the skin, in this case, from the udder of the sheep, The nucleus that contains all the genes is removed from this cell. The nucleus is removed from the egg, so now it's just an empty egg, stripped of its DNA. Just empty. It's got the cytoplasm and that nice membrane around the outside. And these two things are fused together. Now you can inject it in with a little needle, or you can actually, in, in Wilmot's, case, apply a little bit of, I think he applied a little bit of electricity. You could also do it chemically. Um, and they fused. So now you have the nuclear material from this Dorset sheep in an empty egg from a black-faced sheep. And guess what happens? You get a blastocyst. So it starts to develop as if it were an embryo, just like I showed you. It goes through cleavage starts dividing, and this is a human embryo. I don't know if a sheep embryo looks like that, but the artist who wrote it or drew this um, used my picture of a human embryo. And once it gets to the right stage, Dr. Wilmot put this developing embryo in another mother sheep. This is a third sheep now, unrelated to sheep number one, sheep number two. And a few months later, Dolly was born. Is everybody clear on that? Because it's a little bit complicated. Um, (laughs) Who is this sheep related to? (laughs) Why? Right. So the clone is related to the DNA donor. In this case, the skin cell that came from this sheep. What's missing from this picture? The, daddy. the what? The daddy. <laughs> yes. Exactly right. So when Ian Wilmot came to Stanford in 1998, the Memorial Auditorium was packed. It was a packed house. This was a few months after this discovery. And I went there with a friend of mine. Uh, she's now a stem cell scientist here. Uh, and we went together. And we were sitting there. And you know, he had this slide up. Uh, slide very much like it, and you know I was just fascinated by all the technical uh, prowess of what he had done. This was amazing, and it was a typical guy thing to be, you know, fascinated with the specifics and not thinking about the import. And of course, Susie, who was sitting next to me, gave me this big elbow in the side, and she said, "You know what this means, Chris?" And I said, "I said no," and she said, "You're irrelevant." <laughs> and she immediately picked up as you did that there are there's no sperm involved or no male involved in this process. Which, you know, I mean if anybody well there, there's only a couple of guys in here, so we could go out and have a beer afterwards and talk about the kind of the <laughs> profound implications of this for humanity. But the very interesting thing about this is that this sheep was uh, was actually made Simply by a very interesting trick among three, three female sheep. Why wasn't it rejected it itself? Because it's coming from a, a different sheep. Different nucleus. Yeah, that's a very good question. Why why didn't why wasn't this egg rejected uh, in the third sheep? I'm not sure. I know the answer uh, to that, other than you know surrogate parents happen. You know, carry babies all the time, and there's probably some immune privilege going on. Right, there's a placental barrier and that sort of thing, but uh, but that doesn't mean that these these sheep these clones are normal. In fact, they aren't. They're they're present with all sorts of trouble. And Dolly herself had a lot of trouble. She um, had arthritis. She died fairly young, late middle age, not old age. She was big for her age. In fact, this process often uh, create something called LOS, or large offspring syndrome. And so this sort of thing is very inefficient. And that's why we don't have a, our world you know, running crazy with a lot of animal clones. In some cases, we have this process down fairly efficiently. Most of the time, it doesn't work very well. And this really, by the way, as we get into the ethics of cloning, is one of the reasons, in fact a very big reason, why any kind of possibility of human cloning would be grossly unethical. Because if we went through this procedure for a human, this would be the worst form of human experimentation, creating babies that would have all of this genetic trouble. One among many reasons why we would never, should never do this. but. One that's borne out uh, with our experience with animal clones. One question. They
1: took the utter cell and that's why it's named Dolly. It yes, could have oh yes, a brain right. Cell. Mm. It could have been Spock or something like that, right? But is it just that the utter cells are particularly good
0: at. Yeah, That's so, so the. Cell, right. They all have the same DNA, right? Yes, that's right. So the question is why pick an udder cell and not another cell like a neural cell? And that's a good question. Wilmot wanted to test one hypothesis he wanted to take a cell that was pretty much at the end of its road because if you take a cell that's very new like a stem cell or an embryonic cell you can do this fairly easily in fact it had been done in other animals using cells that were developmentally much younger than a cell on your skin so he wanted to take the toughest he wanted to do this with the toughest cell he could imagine and that was a cell on the skin and he took that nucleus which by the way, it's, this, it's the same genetic material as you say, but it's, it's not a neural cell, it's not an embryonic cell, it's a skin cell. So it's already been programmed to be skin. But this process somehow turned the clock back. And that's the amazing thing about the discoveries that were just reported a couple of months ago. I'll talk about this later on in the lectures. But this thing called reprogramming, resetting genes, just like you'd reprogram your computer, is, is the magnificent um, stuff that goes on inside an egg. Did
1: they redo the experiment with younger cells, like an embryonic cell? And yes. And pro- f- same genetic problems
0: with the clones? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. But uh, the first part of your question is did they do these experiments with different kinds of cells of different developmental ages? And yes, they did. In fact, those experiments preceded these. Right? Those were a little bit easier to do, in okay. fact. Not so much in sheep, but in other, in other animals. I think uh, uh, they had done it in other, uh, other kinds of, of, of mammals. But uh, Wilmot had been doing this for years with different cell types. And so he wanted to pick this one um, to see how he could do it. And he did. One more question.
1: Did, you, did Dolly have any offspring?
0: Yes. Dolly went on to breed and produce offspring of her own. And they're now gambling somewhere in a in, in they Scotland, normal, are they, they are normal. So these these uh, these effects tend to diminish through the generations. Yep. All right. So here is taking Dolly's type of technology and applying it towards that first technology of making stem cell lines, right? Remember that first slide I showed you what was the big problem? Rejection. This solves that problem. And how do you do it? You take a skin cell from a patient, from a person who needs it, put it in an empty egg from somebody else, cultivate it, and here's where it gets very different. This is not implanted. It doesn't become a baby. It is taken apart to make the embryonic stem cell line, which then can go on to make the cells. So this got caught in the embryo controversy, because the worry was is that this cloned embryo could then be implanted in a woman, and that you could make a cloned baby. So this is pretty much, you might describe it as a, as a choice that science would make to make cell lines for therapies, or if it got into the wrong hands, into someone who wanted to, if they, they possibly could, put this blastocyst and implant it. So this became a very big concern when these two technologies intersected. And in fact, it became even a bigger deal when a group in <laughs> Florida and I think it was Italy described that they had made the first cloned child. You remember that? the real aliens? They had been visited by um, UFO. And uh, there were some other interesting things about them. But they said that they had a cloned child that they had done with this procedure. Well, it turns out they had no such thing. Um, but they crop up every once in a while in the news, much to our delight. But so, they also use the same
1: patient's empty cell. Why does the empty cell have to come from someone
0: else? Uh, so the question is, uh, why does the empty cell have to come from someone else? Yeah, um, for Well, in this case, if it's a woman, it doesn't. But if this, case, if this case was a man, it would it would have to, right? Okay. Now, by the way, this has not been reduced to any kind of fact. This is still a hope for result. If you remember the big South Korean fraud scandal of about a year and a half ago. That's what they claimed to do, was just as, exactly what I've described to you here. And that was a fake. The South Koreans faked the data. OK. We've talked about the gee whiz way out there in the future sort of stuff. What could we do with this now? This is where we really are today on how we might use this technique to understand disease. Uh, Again, this would be a scenario where you'd have a patient with a specific disease. Take that diseased nucleus where all the DNA is. Remember, most diseases are genetic in some form or another. Put it into an empty egg. Make it into a a cell line that actually approximates a disease in a dish. So now you have a immortal line of growing cells that are very much like ALS in this case, that are mutant. And you could, since this is the disease of the neural system, you could derive them or differentiate them down the line towards motor neurons and then test them and study them at the cellular level and even the molecular level. And finally, you could test drugs against these and have a very powerful way of discovering something that might treat or, in fact, cure this particular disease. And you don't just need to do it for this. You could do it for any disease in principle. So this kind of technique, nuclear transfer, making a specific disease based line, is a pretty interesting sort of uh, possibility for stem cells. Again, it hasn't been reduced to practice. So I'm going to now describe the big results of the last month. Again, you're lucky to be in this class because no other class, I'm sure, is talking about this. And that's that uh, there has now been a way to make a embryonic-like line, and I'm going to use the word like because I do not uh, believe that these lines are identical to embryonic stem cells yet. We haven't really solved that question with any certainty, but they've been able to make very powerful lines that are embryonic-like without eggs or embryos. So this solves, in theory, a bunch of fairly profound moral questions about embryos, use of embryos, the use of eggs, nuclear transfer, uh, the the technical difficulties embodied in those, uh, and we'll see. This is fresh research, by the way. We'll see if this actually can do the trick and, and uh, go towards um, treatments. So here's how it works. Here again, you take a skin cell from a patient or from a person who needs it. And you take that cell and you put it into a petri dish and you multiply them so you've got millions of them. And then you put in that dish a Genetically engineered virus. In this case, it's a retrovirus. It's a common virus that's been engineered not to be infectious. It's also engineered to contain four special genes that we know that are implicated in embryonic stem cells, or embryogenesis. Right? These four genes were actually picked out of a group of 24 by a very uh, clever Japanese scientist named Shinya Yamanaka. And Dr. Yamanaka found four genes that when he put them in the right combination in this skin cell, forced these cells to change to become embryonic-like. And when he put these cells through all of the tests that we put embryonic stem cells, whether they divide endlessly, whether they have stable uh, karyotypes, whether they actually make uh, different kinds of cells of the, the, what we call the three germ layers. If you remember your biology from high school, remember endoderm, ectoderm, and mesoderm, well these cells make those germ layers. Those are kind of the signatures of embryonic stem cells. Then, in theory now, these cells might be able to, by the same processes we've described for the others, Make therapies and different cell types that could be used for the patient. What's neat about this? Can you spot it? Besides the fact it's a nifty, it's a nifty trick of uh, of biology. No, no rejection. Right, no rejection. This is even better than the nuclear transfer example, because the nuclear transfer example where you're taking an egg from a donor that has a little bit of DNA in it. That egg, usually in the mitochondria, it's an organelle. So that means that even those cells made by nuclear transfer put into a person, uh, specifically made for uh, them, would have probably some worry about rejection. Here, it's the same genetic type, identical. Now there are some problems with this. Personally, I wouldn't want a cell put into me that had a virus inserting you know, genes willy nilly all over the genome. So they've got to figure that out. One of these genes, CMYC, it's called C-MYC, is actually a cancer gene. Um, And I wouldn't want that gene hanging out in any cells that they put into me either, even, even if it was genetically matched. They have, since this paper was published, figured out a way to take that cancer gene out. They can get this to work with just three of the four, and the idea is that at some point they 're going to figure out all the chemistry so that no genes are needed, and all you do is put the cells through this regimen of chemical changes, hopefully to make these cells that are powerful enough to repair uh, problems in the body but again i 'm getting way ahead of kind of where we are today and the, f- the cool thing about where we are today is that we could use this same technology to make, remember that case of making the disease in a dish? Now we do it simply by taking the cells from a diseased person, making a specific line of cells, and studying these cells at the cellular level. So I can say, uh, right here at Stanford, I sit on a committee that looks over and approves all of the embryonic and cell. Stem cell research here, and it's delight delightful to do it because I can see what the scientists are cooking up, you know, in the late in the late hours. And there is already on the books here at Stanford a an idea to take these cells from uh, a group of people that have uh, something called um, uh, it's the disease that Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Marfan syndrome, thank you. Right. In fact, I'm not sure if Lincoln actually had it. There's some debate about that. But here at at Stanford, Marfan syndrome is is something that's studied very much by a, a group of scientists here. And over the years, they've collected thousands of cells from Marfan's patients of all different kinds. The disease is very variable. So sometimes you have it bad. Sometimes you have a mild case. It runs in families. And such. So, the idea is that you could use this technology across all of these different cell lines from all of these different individuals and actually come up with a therapy that might be appropriate for one set of them. These, this kind of gets at this notion of personalized medicine for specific so- sorts of diseases. It's a wonderful tool, very powerful, and uh, Eric in a couple of weeks will tell you exactly how he expects that to work. All right. So we're coming up on the end here, just about five more minutes or so. These are the embryonic stem cells, or let's call them the pluripotent or very powerful stem cells. There's also a whole other class of stem cells that I haven't talked about yet. And these are called tissue-specific stem cells. Again, you will get this here, but no place else. We call them tissue-specific. Every place else in the press and other places call them adult stem cells. Right. An adult is actually a misnomer. It's more accurate to say they're tissue-specific. Where do they come from? Well, we've talked about where the embryonic stem cells come from, they come from the embryo at five days or so. But as the embryo starts to to develop, new types of cells start to appear. And among those new types are the so-called tissue-specific or adult stem cells. They happen actually during fetal life. And they persist with this all the way through till death. And that's kind of where the adult moniker came from. So these stem cells are the ones that I described that replace our blood, uh, our, our uh, gut tissue, our brain even, um, heart, and all the rest. And they've were found, they're found in nooks and crannies throughout the body. And I don't think we've actually discovered all of them yet. There is a tremendous amount of research trying to figure out where these cells come from and how we can actually take them out of the body and get them to work in the lab. The problem with adult stem cells or tissue-specific stem cells is they don't work very well in the laboratory. So you get them, if you can find them, because they're horribly tough to find. And once you culture them, they die. They don't die. They don't live very long. With the exception of some neural stem cell types, they're very difficult to manipulate in the lab. that 's another reason why embryonic stem cell research is so uh, uh, so powerful is that these cells go like the Energi- energizer bunny. The adult stem cells have trouble. so there are a bunch of these i 've described um, the intestine. Here are a couple of them, stem cells just right along the area of the what this is called is the crypt. Uh, these are the involutions of the gut. We've got millions of these. And I think there are two or four of these in each crypt. And what they do is they divide and change into all the different kinds of cells in the gut. And they do this on a cycle. I can't remember. I think it's 24 hours or so. 48, for all the way to the top. Then we have the blood stem cell. This stem cell was discovered right here at Stanford. We are the world's biggest group of uh, uh, blood stem cell experts. Um, there's a stem cell uh, in the epidermis at the and a little protuberance in every s- uh, hair follicle called the bulge. These cells have a tendency to kind of get out and move around and so the cells actually traffic and start to move up to form other cells and move down to form the cells of the follicle. Um, somehow my stem cells in my hair went north When I was 25, so I'm very interested in figuring out what happened. Um, And then we have stem cells that make sperm and eggs, too. These are cells that only become one type. They're called unipotent. You know, we talked about totipotent, pluripotent. These are unipotent cells. And here is a, 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 a brief description of one type of cell as it goes from a stem cell to its final form. This is called lineage restriction or differentiation. You can call it a number, uh, n- n- any, any number of sorts of things. You don't have to worry about too much of the terminology here. But all I'll say is that we've already talked about embryonic stem cells. Well, through these signals of genes and proteins, these cells become a different kind of stem cell, the neural stem cell, tissue-specific for neurons, brain, spinal cord, and the rest. And then they become, through restrictive signaling the terminally differentiated or the, the, the last and the end of the road cell types. I've shown you the three major ones here, neurons, oligodendrocytes, and astrocytes. So this is an important concept to take away from the class, is that, is that these cells, once they're programmed to become blood or brain or bone, they're kind of on their way. They've been fated by genetics to go down a certain pathway. So it's very rare, in fact it's a big controversy, to, to see a neural stem cell all of a sudden switch and say, you know what, I don't want to be an oligodendrocyte; I'd rather be a blood cell. Developmental biology teaches us that most of these cells, once they receive their instructions very early in embryonic life, become cells that are fated for the tissues uh, at the, at, uh, where they're resident whether it's blood or brain or bone or muscle or the rest. So that's a very important point, I think, to, to think about. The most amazing thing about the neurons is that these group of neuronal cells uh, very early uh, in the embryo become, at birth, 10 billion cells of the nervous system. It's just astounding. I, I, I can't imagine how it happens. Um, here's another kind of diagram of this family tree this is why the biology is so interesting to so many people is that this is actually a very old picture 1991 i i use it only because it's a nice kind of schematic of all the different kinds of cells in the neural stem cell family and you go to meetings and people are saying i found one and they'll stick it there or they'll find another one put it here and they find them uh, Lickety split! You know, every month you'll hear of a new cell type that comes uh, from the cellular family tree. And here's the blood system. This system was actually uh, discovered and and, uh, and uh, elucidated right here at Stanford. Uh, actually, the guy who uh, discovered the hematopoietic or blood stem cell, Irving Weissman, Irv would probably kill me for showing this slide because, it, first of all, it's not his. And second, because I've left one of his cells out, the the hematopoietic stem cell has a long term and a short term stem cell. Uh, but the idea is the same: <clears throat> the same that these cells become then the the cells of the blood. T lymphocytes are white blood cells. Are red blood cells without nuclei? Uh, the uh, the cells of the immune system. Okay. And just to cross your eyes um, and give you a headache, here's the family tree. Again, a very old picture, but I include it because it's interesting to see how embryogenesis and how these, these embryonic stem cells then start to change into all of these different cell types that we know about here. I haven't counted all of these. But when I say about 200, it's probably underestimating all of the different cell types that embryonic stem cells can make. This diagram, really is schematic, represents why we're very excited about embryonic stem cells. Okay, the last couple of slides. Um, this is uh, something to, to take home and carry with you, and that's that if a scientist comes up to you and says, "Oh, I heard you took this stem cell class at Stanford, can you give me the definition of a stem cell?" Here it is. All right. Uh, stem cells have two properties. They self-renew or make another stem cell, or they change or differentiate. Right. So y- your rejoinder to the scientist who ask you this is they can either self-renew, make another stem cell just exactly like it, or through the process of genes and signaling can make another cell down the road. And this this is kind of the central property of of stem cells. And they make these intermediate types called progenitor cells. So that's really an easy way of kind of thinking about it. And finally, this is the big reason uh, why a whole new area of of, uh, stem cell biology has emerged called the cancer stem cell. Now I'll toggle back on this slide to just show you If this process goes haywire, what happens? You get tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of exact cells. What does that remind you of? Cancer. Right. keeps on growing. Right. So if this process is not regulated, then you might have this, where this self-renewal process of making more and more and more cells Results in uh, cancer, unregulated cell growth. So, a very hot area of stem cell biology right now. Much of it going on right here in my bigger course. If you're interested uh, in next year coming to it, there's an entire lecture on this by a famous cancer stem cell uh, biologist right here at Stanford. He goes through all of the ins and outs of this. I think this takes us to the end. It does. So thanks for suffering through this. This was a pretty long uh, lecture, but I'm glad we got through it because there was a lot of material. For next week, um, read chapter 9 in Stem Cell Now. And if you've bought Stem Cell Century, chapters 3 to 5 are excellent on the policy and law issues around this. Um, I'm going to pass out this article. This is an unpublished article by a uh, legal scholar here at Stanford, Susan Stain, and it describes all of the different kinds of laws that different states have on embryonic stem cells. So if you think it's a mess in the biology, you haven't seen anything yet inside the halls of, uh, of the legisla- uh, legislatures across the country. And then finally, what I want you to do is, is read this paper. This is the embryonic stem cell paper I mentioned. James Thompson. It's three pages. Um, Don't read it while you're in bed, Okay. Read it while you're perky in the morning. And don't worry about all the technical stuff. Read it once, twice if you want, and put it in a drawer. And forget about it. And then at the end of the class, what I want you to do is take it out and read it again, and see if you get anything that James Thompson is talking about. I betcha you will if uh, past experience is any indication. So that ends it. Thank you very much.